0: Lord, we pray that you would open our minds to your word, that we would see your glory and your majesty, but also your incredible grace to us, the fact that you have crowned us each as human beings with glory and honor to be the pinnacle of your creation here on earth, and that our dignity is derived from you. I pray that you would give us eyes to see that about ourselves this morning and that we would see it about each other. And even more, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that there is one who encapsulates perfectly what it means to be made in your image, and that one is Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would give us the humility to look to him, to look to him and to trust him this morning. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we're back in the Psalms, and the previous Psalms, especially three through seven, have been Psalms of lament, Psalms of dealing with enemies. They've struck this sort of negative tone in a way, but Psalm 8 is the first. we call his transcendence, what we see in his majesty and his glory, his distance, but also of his nearness and closeness to us. It helps us make sense out of what it means to be human in this world. So I invite you to Psalm 8, whatever access you have to that, it'll be helpful as always if you have a text in front of you, Psalm 8, whether that text is electronic or a hard copy. And one of these days, we'll be able to have pew Bibles again when we're not worried about viruses lingering on them and such. But that day is coming. I'll give you just a moment to turn there to Psalm 8. I don't hear too many pages rustling, which means we've all gone to technology and you're clicking away and I can't hear it. If I hear it, it's a problem. You realize that. If I hear the clicking on the screen, that means you're doing something wrong. All right, Psalm 8. Let's begin in verse 1. You'll notice, as always, by the way, that top heading, these headings are original to the text. It mentions David being the author of this psalm. And he says in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord. I just want to draw your attention to this just just by way of pausing for a second. Notice, as I've said multiple times, anytime you see all caps in the Old Testament, we're talking about that divine name, Yahweh. Sometimes we talk about Jehovah. It's the same thing. So, O Yahweh, the personal name of God, our Lord. Notice that he identifies him first by this personal divine name, that name that's sometimes associated with I am. But then he also has this idea of our Lord, this closeness, the same way Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father, this collective community of God's people together coming before Almighty God. So he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, look at the brackets here. If you jump down to verse 9, you'll see that this psalm is bracketed with verse 1 and verse 9. It's like bookends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then in verse 9, you see that exact phrase repeated, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth? And that's a poetic device bringing us back. So it's sort of a way of framing the entire psalm and helping us see the world through this lens of God Almighty whose majesty fills the whole earth. And we have to understand everything in the psalm and everything about life and everything in this world in light of that central fact that the Lord's name is majestic in all the earth. Now the next question is, what do we mean by the name of the Lord? When the Bible uses this language of the name of someone, it's shorthand for referring to an entire person, to referring to their reputation or their character. And so what David means here is, your character, Lord, your reputation, who you are, fills the earth. Your majesty fills the earth. All of creation bears witness to your reputation and to your character. The majesty of the one true God fills the entire earth. This is why several Christian thinkers have throughout Christian history referred to creation as another book of God's self-disclosure or God's revelation. Yes, we have scripture and it is in scripture first and foremost where we have the only sufficient rule for our faith and practice. This is alone sufficient to lead us to the true knowledge of the one true God. But Once we have Scripture to give us truth, we also have creation which bears witness to who God is. It bears witness to the fact that He is powerful, that He is mighty, that He is majestic. We see this, by the way, in Romans chapter 1 when Paul talks about how God's attributes are on display In his creation, he says God's attributes can be clearly perceived by the things that have been created. And so everything in creation has this mark of the creator on it. Now we're so busy in our modern world that we have trouble doing what David talks about doing here. And we all live in this sort of metropolis region here in Richmond. And it's a wonderful place, full of convenience, but it's also lacking when it comes to seeing God's creation. The city lights sort of blur, the sky at night, the light pollution from that makes it difficult. We see a lot of concrete. We see a lot of buildings. We see a lot of business. And all of those things can be good in another sense. But what David's talking about doing here requires us to stop and to get away from all the busyness and all the noise in order to apprehend the majesty and the glory of God in creation. In order to even write these words, David would have had to sit somewhere under a night sky and ponder the Creator in light of what he's looking at. I had the opportunity two weeks ago to become sort of a mountain man and become rugged, Now, I'm not rugged whatsoever. I hadn't been camping in probably 10 years, but I went to the mountains of western North Carolina, below Boone, north of Asheville, and drove up an eight-mile gravel road that took an hour to get just to the parking lot And there I would camp with some other men, and it was a great experience, but one of the pinnacles of that moment was on our final morning, we got up at 4 o'clock, which wasn't the good part at all. We got up at 4 o'clock to drink instant coffee, again, not a good part of the trip, and we Hike to the summit of Table Rock, which is the mountain we were staying under. And we made it to the summit in order to watch the sunrise. And it was an experience unlike anything I've experienced because as the sun began to rise, there's almost this processional beforehand where the sky began to glow. It almost looked like the embers of a fire. And the sun still hadn't come. It's like everything in creation was waiting for the sun to come up. And I began to understand, I think, more of this. what Psalm 19 and other psalms are talking about when they talk about God and his creation being a display of his glory. And so I I just had this moment on that mountain of recognizing creation, but also recognizing the God who brings all of that into being. It's the same when I looked at the, the rocks and all of these huge formations that make me feel so incredibly small. Creation is breathtaking. And you don't have to drive to the mountains. You don't have to go to Boone or drive that six hours away or even go to a park in order to do what David's talking about. You can simply look out your back door. You can look at the birds in your backyard or the trees or the flowers or the insects. And you might say, well, I only live on a quarter of an acre that happens to be about the size of our lot in the suburbs, right? But but again, there's so much right there that reveals the glory of God. Even insects that you don't want to touch, the colors on them reveal the glory of God. And here's the key to all of this. Let those things drive you to the worship of the one true God. To see his majesty, his creative spirit in all the earth to see what David talks about here, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we could talk about other aspects outside of creation as well, like the common provision of medication and our medical system that we're relying on so much these days. All of that is part of God's good governance in the world. And even in those things, we can see how his majesty is filling the earth. So we don't have to at all limit this to natural creation. We can also think in terms of the way we see God's provision every day for us as human beings in the world. Now, the second half of the verse talks about the glory of God being above the heavens, at least in the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from as usual. And it's not necessary to translate it that way at all. I don't actually think this is a good translation to say it's above the heavens. So, if you're following along in a different translation, you may see a different rendering, such as the NIV, which is pretty good here. You have set your glory in the heavens, or you have set your glory upon the heavens, or among the heavens, something like that. The idea that behind this isn't that God's glory is somehow further away out there and we can't see it. The idea seems to be that as we turn our gaze upward, we can see in some small measure the glory of God on display. So whether we look at the ground beneath our feet or we're sitting on a mountain touching the rocks that are ancient or we feel the wind on our face or we look at the night sky, we are confronted by God's kingly majesty and his glorious goodness, his glorious governance of the world. Now, I want to make one final comment about this verse before we move on. Because in this verse there's something of a contrast how majestic is your name in all the earth? So here we're talking about the place we inhabit, the place we know. But then the next line, the parallel line says, you have set your glory above the heavens. So we have a bit of a contrast. We see the nearness of God in the earth, in creation, but we also see what we call the transcendence, the, 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 the distance of God in the heavens. If you think about this in terms of the metaphor being used here, that the vastness. 73,000 years. Time we don't have to get there. So we're talking about God, who is not in creation itself. He's not the trees, not the sun, he's not the stars, but the creator of all that vastness. And that's just touching on the very edge of the vastness of what we know of the known universe. It extends to a point that is just absolutely incomprehensible. And here we have a key point of this psalm and really a key point of Christian thinking about God. The one true God is entirely transcendent, incomprehensible by our finite minds, and at the same time he is near to us. As someone has said, nearer than our very breath. Do you see that? God is transcendent and yet he is close. And that's what David will talk about in the middle portion of the psalm. But first, let's talk about verse 2 as it reminds us of his greatness and his glory. In verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you may remember Jesus quotes this in Matthew's gospel. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And you might wonder, why would God have enemies and foes? And why would David turn his attention from the majesty and glory of God to these enemies? Again, we can go back to Romans 1. Because in Romans 1, Paul's argument is, what can be known about God or, or God can be clearly perceived from creation. And yet, as human beings, as a result of the effect of sin, what we do with that knowledge is not embrace it, but we suppress it. We reject it. We bar the door. We run from it. And instead, Paul says, we worship the creation rather than the creator. All of that's in Romans 1. And what he's getting at is this idea in Christian thinking that goes back a long time, that the human heart is curved in on itself. It's not curved out toward God to worship and to love him. That's not our default setting. Our default setting, because of this ravaging effect of sin, which isn't just a matter of breaking some arbitrary rules, but it's this deep problem that corrodes the whole human experience. Because of that, the human heart is curved away from God. But as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, God desires and plans and wills to use the small things, the weak things in this world to display his strength and glory. So that makes sense out of verse 2, because here we have the weakest things in the world, babies and infants. And out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have displayed your glory. When we think about the wonder of childbirth or the fact that there is a child that that somehow can be born into this world and survive, is just absolutely incredible. And in that way, God's glory is on display, even against those who would oppose him. And of course, the most obvious example of God using weakness in our world to display his glory would be the cross of Jesus. And we'll come to that in a few moments. And even though God is so far above us, so transcendent, humans have been given a key role in God's creation. Look at the next two verses, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What is man that you remember him? Literally is the Hebrew sense here. That, that he takes, he, he, he comes across your mind, he flashes across your mind. Now think about what David's saying here. Part of being human As sad as this is, it's really not a good thing. But part of being human is recognizing our own smallness in light of the vast universe. Animals don't recognize that, as far as we know. But we're conscious of this really horrifying reality that we're incredibly small in this vast universe. And David here recognizes that as well. He says, when I look at the vastness around me, the moon and the stars and all the work of your hands, and yet I consider the reality that you want to commune with me and that you draw near to me, that is something I can't wrap my head around. As he looks at the night sky, he realizes his own smallness. Now, it's fascinating that This is, uh, there's a practice promoted by non-Christians called star therapy. It's actually gaining traction. It got popular uh, when one of the big podcasters named Tim Ferriss brought this out in a podcast a few years ago. The idea is that given all our anxiety and all our depression and all our uh, neuroses and things we deal with in the modern world, the idea is that every night we should take some time to just go stand out underneath the sky and look up and realize how small we are. And when you do so, you realize that this universe is vast and our problems are pretty small by comparison. One popular writer, physician B.J. Miller, who has lots of talks online, writes, just mulling the bare naked facts of the cosmos is enough to thrill me, awe me, freak me out, and kind of put all my neurotic anxieties in their proper place. A lot of people, when you're standing at the edge of your horizon at death's door, you can be much more in tune with the cosmos. So, so notice there's this secular approach to just simply going out and realizing I'm really small, I'm really frail, and that puts things into perspective. So two conclusions stand out if we trace them to their logic ends. We, we kind of have two options here, and you can think about it this way. First, we, conclude, we can conclude that our smallness reveals our utter insignificance, our futility and meaningless, meaninglessness. Um, This is best expressed by the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. For example, he wrote, Man is a useless passion. It is meaningless that we live, and it is meaningless that we die. That's kind of the idea of star therapy. Go look at the stars and realize you're pretty small, and those stars have been here a long time, but you're not going to be here a long time. So that's one option. It's pretty bleak. But David offers us another option. There's a second option on the table that the Bible presents us. The Bible presents humanity not merely as finite and frail, but as imbued, endowed with the dignity of God. Humans are created in the image of God. To be created in the image of God means we are reflections of God's glory in and to creation. Humans, we're told, are the pinnacle of God's earthly creation. Yes, we are small and we are frail, but God has given us a premier place in his... Do you see the difference? One just simply stops at our frailty. The other view says, but there's more to the story. Yes, we're small. Yes, there is a big God. Yes, this is a huge universe, but there is more to being human than simply we're small and frail and meaningless. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him... See the contrast? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. So in verses 3 and 4, I look at the sky, I see how small I am. But in verse 5, I realize something else. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That phrase translated heavenly beings may look crazy in your translations because it, it can be all over the place. It's, it's complicated. It's debated about what it actually means. There's a lot of challenges in it. The most literal rendering is simply God's. But we know as we read all of Scripture that, that when that term is used, of God's, we're not talking about the, the same sort of God as the God of Israel, as Yahweh. So, it's not uncommon in Scripture to read about other gods, but in that sense, they are still creations of the one true God. And in that sense, they really fit this translation well of being heavenly beings. Later interpreters, including the New Testament, understand this as a reference to angels. So, in any case, the point of this verse is clear humanity is the crown of God's creation on earth. And this is extremely important as we think about the sacredness and significance of humanity. Our dignity, our importance, our worth, our value is derived from our maker. Human dignity is a reflection of God's glory. This is why Christians have historically valued humans caring for the poor and disabled, the widow and the orphan, infants left for dead by exposure in the ancient world they would adopt and take in. These are Christian tasks because we believe that humanity bears the marks of our God. In his famous speech, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis concludes it by saying this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now, he's no Mormon. He doesn't believe that we become like God in the sense of becoming equal to God. But he is saying that we become more in the image of God as we progress in our holiness. We become more human is another way of putting it. He says that's a serious thing to live in that society. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. So he says everybody you meet is on a trajectory. They, they may become more and more human Projecting the image of God or or when all is said and done, they may become less human and they may be a horror a thousand years from now. All day long, he goes on, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Do you you hear what he's saying? The life of a country in light of our everlasting life as souls that will live forever, as humans who will live forever, is small by comparison. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He concludes by saying that our fellow humans are one of the holiest objects we encounter. Why are they holy? Because they're stamped with the image of God. It is a derived holiness. Human dignity is derived from God. This goes back to the opening chapter of Scripture when God creates mankind in His image. According to the Christian worldview, human value is not earned, it is derived God gives it to us. And when God creates humans, he creates them in his image. Practically, this means we have to, we must resist our culture's view of humans. In our culture, human value is not considered derived. Human value is earned by our culture's estimation. That's why we reward successful people. It's why we reward beautiful people. That's why we reward talented people while we largely ignore powerless or insignificant people. But in Christianity, it's totally the opposite. Human value is not earned because someone agrees with our position or because they're more beautiful than the person next to them or because they're more successful. Human value is derived because that person is created in God's image. So, when we devalue another human by demonizing them or depicting them poorly, we are failing to love God because we are rejecting his creative mark on humans. Now, there's great debate about what it means to be made in the image of God, but part of what it means is told to us in Genesis 1. Because when God creates human beings in his image, he then says to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and then. He gives them the authority to rule over creation, to cultivate and care for it. That's the functional image of God in us. God has given us as stewards what is rightfully his. He's the ruler, the sovereign, and he has extended that right to us. In that way, we as human beings are reflecting God's image in creation. Think of it this way. We have been given the authority of the king to steward and to rule in his creation. Look at verses 6 and 8 in our psalm. You have given him dominion. This is just repeating Genesis 1. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This is the human task. And it's a major feature of what it means to be created in the image of God. We are vice regents. We are ambassadors, if you will, in his creation. But we know that this task isn't fulfilled by humanity. Humanity rebels. Creation is corrupted. Human value is neglected. Humans do all sorts of horrible things. Genesis clues us in on what that looks like right away. In Genesis chapter 4, we meet two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain destroys his brother by killing him. You see, he devalues the image of God. And then it's Cain's lineage that continues that same pattern of treating human beings that way. And we know that humans fell in this task throughout history. Think about the horrible, horrible things humans are capable of atrocious things, things that we wouldn't even want to talk about here, things that we can't even fathom when we hear them. But the image of God that is stamped on us is not totally lost. It is distorted, and it's in need of restoration. It's in need of repair. And here we realize that as we read this psalm and come to the conclusion of the psalm, that we must look elsewhere for one to fulfill this psalm for one to make sense out of what it means to be human, for one who can restore this image of God that's stamped on us. And we realize that as with all Scripture, it is Christ who fulfills this song. God's involvement with humanity does not stay distant, as in the God of deism who simply sits back and lets the world run. God draws near to humanity in the incarnation of Christ. See, God takes on flesh in order to restore creation. It is Christ, we're told in the New Testament, who is the perfect image of God. It is Christ who fulfills the task of humanity. In fact, one of the sustained expositions of this psalm is in Hebrews chapter 2. In in Hebrews chapter 2, there is this exposition of Psalm 8. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ lowered himself ...by becoming human. And he applies this psalm and he says... ...he was made a little lower than the angels. Christ lowered himself by becoming human. Why did he do that? So that he might redeem us from sin, Satan, and death. The incarnation is a cosmic invasion... ...of a territory held in the grasp of sin, Satan, and death. And that invasion... The fact that the living God steps into time and space makes it possible for us to be restored, to be fully human as we were created to be. Probably the best and most important book on this is from the 4th century church father named Athanasius. He has two lines that I want to share with you. First, he writes, "...the Word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man." ...made after the image. We need someone capable of recreating us. And Christ alone is capable of that. You and I aren't capable of it. I'm not capable of it. I can't do it for you. I can't do it for myself. Christ came because he alone could restore the image of God in us. He does that by redeeming us from sin, Satan, and death. Not just forgiving us. That's an aspect of it. But by redeeming us from the powers that hold us captive that calls us to be curved in on ourselves, that calls us to rebel, that calls us to look at the sky and wonder why we're here and feel so frail and not understand that there is a God who is governing all of this. And then he takes that one step further. By redeeming us and washing us and making us clean, he then fills us with the Holy Spirit of God so that we can be transformed from the inside out. The very life of God is injected into us so that we can become like God. Later, Athanasius wrote that Christ assumed humanity so that we might become God. And you might think, what in the world? This guy must have been a heretic. Actually, he was a great defender of orthodoxy. But what he means is not that we would become like God or take God's place in that sense. He meant, as C.S. Lewis would later put it, that our task as Christians or what God is doing with us as Christians is making us little Christ, little image bearers, Little reflections of the majestic and glorious God. Because Christ, through the power of the Spirit, is restoring the image of God in us. The image of God in us becomes more radiant through the work of the Holy Spirit, which is poured out on us when we trust in Christ. Every religion in the world will tell you that. That is not what Christianity teaches We've seen how that would go, by the way, if we were trying that. We would murder and kill each other like we see in Genesis. And if we didn't do it physically, we would do it as Jesus says in Matthew 5. We would do it in our hearts. And we know it to be true as long as we just think about what happens in here and in here. The gospel isn't even that we go to heaven when we die. It's not, not alone, the gospel. Though it is supremely true that because of Christ's incarnation, because of his death, because of his resurrection, and because of his ascension, death is no longer terrible. It no longer has the final say. Redeeming us from sin, Satan, and death means that death itself will be finally defeated, and the sting of death has now been removed. The gospel is that creation is in deep need of redemption. And the living God has acted by becoming incarnate in order to redeem his creation. That is the gospel message. It is an announcement of the sovereign God coming near, invading his creation when, as David said, he could simply back out and let this world turn into utter chaos. But the God of the Bible did not do that. Instead, he took on flesh and comes into our world in order to buy back his creation from sin, Satan, and death. And so what the psalm calls us to do is to behold the majesty of God in creation, but another way we can say this is that we must behold the glory of God in Christ. Look to Christ. That, that's the gospel call. Look to Him. I cannot emphasize this enough. If we want to know what it means to be fully human, if we want communion with our Creator, if we're looking for peace, if we're looking for meaning in our world, we must look to Christ. ...because He is the exact image of the one true God. And the only way we're going to capture truth... ...or to capture the God whose majesty fills all of creation... ...is by looking to Christ. It is only there that we're going to be able to apprehend the God of the Bible. So whatever you came in looking for this morning... ...whether you've been a believer for six, seven decades you're not a believer at all, or you don't really know what you are, you might believe, you might not, depends what day you wake up, wherever you are on that, the message of this psalm is abundantly clear to us. Yes, we are small in this universe, but there is deep meaning and significance in being human. So much meaning and significance that God has set forth a plan from eternity past to redeem you from all of the things that keep you in bondage. And He desires you to walk with Him and commune with Him so that you can know what it means to be fully human as He intended you to be. Pastor Chris is coming to pray our pastoral prayer this morning. Let me just extend an invitation to you. As always, our pastoral staff, myself included, is happy to talk to you about belief, About doubt, about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to grow as a Christian, about what it means to join a church like Monument Heights and the process that we would go through for that, about baptism, if that's on your mind, as a next step in obedience to Christ. All of those things are available to you, and we desire to have those conversations with you, and that's what we're here for. You can reach out to us this week, you can catch us after the service. Um, We'll be standing out front here. Uh, or you can, like I said, send us an email. Those are all available on the website, and we're in the office throughout the week, and we would love to talk with you about that. Pastor Chris is coming to pray for us.
1: Let us pray together. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, what a comforting message this morning. As we look at the world around us, just with wars and battles and sickness and storms, Lord, whether they're worldwide or whether they're in our own homes, Lord, may we never forget how mighty and awesome and powerful you are. Lord, may we never forget that we need to look to you in all things. Lord, if we've got a storm going on in our life or a storm coming like our our fellow countrymen down in Louisiana, Lord, may we constantly look to you for your refuge and your strength. Lord, if there's people around us that are sick, may we trust in you. Lord, your word tells us that we need to just reflect your glory in all we do. I pray, Lord, that as we go through the hard times of life or the good times of life, that people around us will see Jesus. Lord, may we never make things all about ourselves. May everything we do point others to Jesus. So, Lord, through these hard times our nation is going through, I pray that we would, as Christians, as believers, that we would truly point people to Jesus. Lord, may you be honored and glorified in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.